Section 6 of the South Pole. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jer, Folly Beach, South Carolina. The South Pole by Roald Amundsen. Translation by A. G. Carter. Section 6, Volume 1, Chapter 2. Plan and Preparations, Part 3. So far I have been dealing with our general outfit, and shall now pass to the special equipment of the shore party. The hut we took out was built on my property on Bundefjord, so that I was able to watch the work as it progressed. It was built by the brothers Hans and Jorgen Stuberud, and was throughout a splendid piece of work, which did honor to both the brothers. The materials proved excellent in every way. The hut was twenty-six feet long by thirteen feet wide, its height from the floor to the ridge of the roof was about twelve feet. It was built as an ordinary Norwegian house with pointed gable and had two rooms. One of these was nineteen and a half feet long and was to serve as our dormitory, dining room, and sitting room. The other room was six and a half feet long and was to be Lindstrom's kitchen. From the kitchen a double trapdoor led to the loft where we intended to keep a quantity of provisions and outfit. The walls consisted of three-inch planks, with air spaces between, panels outside and inside with air spaces between them and the plank walling. For insulation we used cellulose pulp. The floor and the ceiling between the rooms and the loft were double, while the upper room was single. The doors were extraordinarily thick and strong, and fitted into oblique grooves, so that they closed very tightly. There were two windows a triple one in the end wall of the main room, and a double one in the kitchen. For the covering of the roof we took out roofing paper, and for the floor, linoleum. In the main room there were two air pipes, one to admit fresh air, and the other for the exhaust. There were bunks for ten men in two stages, six on one wall and four on the other. The furniture of the room consisted of a table, a stool for each man, and a lux lamp. One half of the kitchen was occupied by the range, the other by shelves and cooking utensils. The hut was tarred several times, and every part was carefully marked so that it could easily be set up. To fasten it to the ground and prevent the Antarctic storms from blowing it away, I had strong eye-bolts screwed into each end of the roof ridge and the four corners of the roof. We carried six strong eye-bolts, a meter long, to be rammed into the barrier, between these bolts and those on the hut steel wires were to be stretched, which could be drawn quite tight. We also had two spare cables, which could be stretched over the roof if the gales were too severe. The two ventilating pipes and the chimney were secured outside with strong stays. As will be seen, every precaution was taken to make the hut warm and comfortable, and to hold it down on the ground. We also took on board a quantity of loose timber, boards, and planks. Besides the hut, we took with us fifteen tents for sixteen men each. Ten of these were old but good. They were served out to us from the naval stores. The other five were new, and we bought them from the army depots. It was our intention to use the tents as temporary houses. They were easily and quickly set up, and were strong and warm. On the voyage to the south, Roan sewed new floors of good strong canvas to the five new tents. All cases of provisions that were intended for winter quarters 
were marked and stowed separately in the hold, in such a way that they could be put out on the ice at once. We had ten sledges made by a firm of sporting outfitters in Christiana. They were built like the old Nansen sledges, but rather broader and were twelve feet long. The runners were of the best American hickory, shod with steel. The other parts were of good, tough Norwegian ash. To each sledge belonged a pair of spare runners, which could easily be fitted underneath by means of clamps, and as easily removed when not required. The steel shoeing of the runners was well coated with red lead, and the spare runners with tar. These sledges were extremely strongly built, and could stand all kinds of work on every sort of surface. At that time I did not know the conditions on the barrier as I afterwards came to know them. Of course, these sledges were very heavy. We took twenty pairs of ski, all of the finest hickory. They were eight feet long and proportionately narrow. I chose them of this length with a view to being able to cross the numerous cracks in the glaciers. The greater the surface over which the weight could be distributed, the better prospect we should have of slipping over the snow bridges. We had forty ski poles with ebonite points. The ski bindings were a combination of the Huttfeld and the Hoyer Ellefson bindings. We also had quantities of loose straps. We had six three-man tents, all made in the Navy workshops. The workmanship could not have been better. They were the strongest and most practical tents that have ever been used. They were made of the closest canvas, with the floor in one piece. One man was sufficient to set up the tent in the stiffest breeze. I have come to the conclusion that the fewer poles a tent has, the easier it is to set up, which seems quite natural. These tents have only one pole. How often one reads in narratives of polar travel that it took such and such a time, often hours, to set up the tent, and then, when at last it was up, one lay expecting it to be blown down at any moment. There was no question of this with our tents. They were up in a twinkling and stood against all kinds of wind. We could lie securely in our sleeping bags and let it blow. The arrangement of the door was on the usual sack principle, which is now recognized as the only serviceable one for the polar regions. The sack patent is quite simple, like all patents that are any good. Not a particle of snow can get into a tent with this floor sewed on and an entrance of this kind, even in the worst storm. The cases for sledging provisions were made of fairly thin, tough ash, which came from the estate of Palsgard in Jutland and the material did all it promised. These cases were one foot square and fifteen and a half inches high. They had only a little round opening on the top, closed with an aluminum lid, which fitted exactly like the lid of a milk can. Large lids weakened the cases, and I had therefore chosen this form. We did not have to throw off the lashing of the case to get the lid off, and this is a very great advantage. We could always get at it. A case with a large lid, covered by the lashing, gives constant trouble. The whole lashing has to be undone for every little thing one wants out of the case. This is not always convenient. If one is tired and slack, it may sometimes happen that one will put off till tomorrow what ought to be done today, especially when it is bitterly cold. The handier one's sledging outfit, the sooner one gets into the tent and to rest, and that is no small consideration on a long journey. Our outfit of clothing was abundant and more complete, I suppose, than that of any former polar expedition. We may divide it into two classes, the outfit for specially low temperatures and that for more moderate temperatures. 
It must be remembered that no one had yet wintered on the barrier, so we had to be prepared for anything. In order to be able to grapple with any degree of cold, we were supplied with the richest assortment of reindeer skin clothing. We had it specially thick, medium, and quite light. It took a long time to get these skin clothes prepared. First the reindeer skins had to be bought in a raw state, and this was done for me by Mr. Zapfa at Tromso, Karasjok, and Kato Kaino. Let me take the opportunity of thanking this man for the many and great services he has rendered me, not only during my preparations for the third voyage of the Fram, but in the fitting out of the Gyoa expedition as well. With his help I have succeeded in obtaining things that I should otherwise never have been able to get. He shrank from no amount of work, but went on till he had found what I wanted. This time he procured nearly two hundred and fifty good reindeer skins, dressed by the laps, and sent them to Christiana. Here I had great trouble in finding a man who could sew skins, but at last I found one. We then went to work to make clothes after the pattern of the Nacelli Eskimo, and the sewing went on early and late. Thick anoraks and thin ones, heavy breeches and light, winter stockings and summer stockings. We also had a dozen thin sleeping bags, which I thought of using inside the big thick ones, if the cold should be too severe. Everything was finished, but not until the last moment. The outer sleeping bags were made by Mr. Bront, furrier of Bergen, and they were so excellent, both in material and making up, that no one in the world could have done better. It was a model piece of work. To save this outer sleeping bag, we had it provided with a cover of the lightest canvas, which was a good deal longer than the bag itself. It was easy to tie the end of the cover together like the mouth of the sack, and this kept the snow out of the bag during the day's march. In this way, we always kept ourselves free from the annoyance of drifting snow. We attached great importance to having the bags made of the very best sort of skin, and took care that the thin skin of the belly was removed. I have seen sleeping bags of the finest reindeer skin spoilt on a comparatively short time if they contained a few patches of this thin skin, as of course the cold penetrates more easily through the thin skin, and gives rise to dampness in the form of rime on meeting the warmth of the body. These thin patches remain damp whenever one is in the bag, and in a short time they lose their hair. The damp spreads, like decay in wood, and continually attacks the surrounding skin, with the result that one fine day you find yourself with a hairless sleeping bag. One cannot be too careful in the choice of skins. For the sake of economy, the makers of reindeer skin sleeping bags are in the habit of sewing them in such a way that the direction of the hair is towards the opening of the bag. Of course, this suits the shape of the skins best, but it does not suit the man who is going to use the bag, for it is no easy matter to crawl into a sleeping bag which is only just wide enough to allow one to get in, and if the way of the hair is against one, it is doubly difficult. I had them all made as one-man bags, with lacing round the neck. This did not, of course, meet with the approval of all, as will be seen later. The upper part of this thick sleeping bag was made of thinner reindeer skin, so that we might be able to tie it closely round the neck. The thick skin will not draw so well and fit so closely as the thin. Our clothing in moderate temperatures consisted of thick woolen underclothing and Burberry windproof overalls. This underclothing was specially designed for the purpose. I had myself watched the preparation of the material and knew that it contained nothing but pure wool. 
we had overalls of two different materials, Burberry gabardine and the ordinary green kind that is used in Norway in the winter. For sledge journeys, where one has to save weight and to work in loose, easy garments, I must unhesitatingly recommend Burberry. It is extraordinarily light and strong and keeps the wind completely out. For hard work, I prefer the green kind. It keeps out the wind equally well, but is heavier and more bulky and less comfortable to wear on a long march. Our Burberry wind clothes were made in the form of anorak, blouse, and trousers, both very roomy. The others consisted of trousers and jacket with hood. Our mitts were for the most part such as one can buy in any shop. We wanted nothing else in and around winter quarters. Outside the mitts we wore an outer covering of windproof material so as not to wear them out too quickly. These mitts are not very strong, though they are good and warm. Besides these, we had ten pairs of ordinary kid mitts, which were bought at a glove shop in Christiana, and were practically impossible to wear out. I wore mine from Fraunheim to the Pole and back again, and afterwards on the voyage to Tasmania. The lining, of course, was torn in places, but the seams of the mitts were just as perfect as the day I bought them. Taking into consideration the fact that I went on ski the whole way and used two poles, it will be understood that the mitts were strongly made. We also had a number of woolen gloves, which, curiously enough, the others greatly prized. For myself, I was never able to wear such things. They simply freeze the fingers off me. But most important of all is the covering of the feet, for the feet are the most exposed members and the most difficult to protect. One can look after the hands. If they grow cold, it is easy to beat them into warmth again. Not so with the feet. They are covered up in the morning, and this is a sufficiently troublesome piece of work to make one disinclined to do it again until one is turning in. They cannot be seen in the course of the day, and one has to depend entirely on feeling. But feeling, in this case, often plays curious tricks. How often it has happened that men have had their feet frozen off without knowing it, for if they had known it, they could not possibly have let it go so far. The fact is that in this case sensation is a somewhat doubtful guide, for the feet lose all sensation. It is true that there is a transitional stage when one feels the cold smarting in one's toes and tries to get rid of it by stamping the feet. As a rule, this is successful. The warmth returns or the circulation is restored, but it occasionally happens that sensation is lost at the very moment when these precautions are taken, and then one must be an old hand to know what has happened. Many men conclude that, as they no longer feel the unpleasant smarting sensation, all is well, and at the evening inspection a frozen foot of tallow-like appearance presents itself. An event of this kind may ruin the most elaborately prepared enterprise and it is therefore advisable in the matter of feet to carry one's caution to lengths which may seem ridiculous. Now, it is a fact that if one can wear soft footgear exclusively, the risk of frostbite is far less than if one is compelled to wear stiff boots. In soft footgear, of course, the foot can move far more easily and keep warm, but we were to take ski and to get full use out of them, so that in any case we had to have a stiff sole for the sake of the bindings. It is of no use to have a good binding unless you can use it in the right way. In my opinion, on a long journey such as that we had before us, the ski must be perfectly steady. I do not know anything that tires me more than a bad fastening, that is, one that allows the foot to shift in the binding. 
I want the ski to be a part of oneself, so that one always has full command of them. I have tried many patents, for I have always been afraid of a stiff fastening in cold temperatures. But all these patents, without exception, are worthless in the long run. I decided this time to try a combination of stiff and soft footgear, so that we could use the splendid Hutfield Hoyer Ellefson bindings. But this was no easy matter. Of our whole outfit, nothing caused me more worry or gave us all more work in the course of the expedition than the stiff outer covering which we had to have. But we solved the problem at last. I applied to one of the leading makers of ski boots in Christiana and explained the difficulty to him. Fortunately, I had found a man who was evidently interested in the question. We agreed that he should make a sample pair after the pattern of ski boots. The sole was to be thick and stiff, for we had to be prepared to use crampons, but the uppers as soft as possible. In order to avoid leather, which usually becomes stiff and easily cracked in the cold, he was to use a combination of leather and thin canvas for the uppers, leather nearest the sole and canvas above it. The measurements were taken from my foot, which is not exactly a child's foot, with two pairs of reindeer skin stockings on, and ten pairs were made. I well remember seeing those boots in civilized Christiana. They were exhibited in the bootmaker's windows. I used to go a long way around to avoid coming face to face with these monsters in public. We are all a trifle vain, and dislike having our own shortcomings shown up in electric light. If I had ever cherished any illusions on the subject of a dainty little foot, I am sure the last trace of such vanity died out on the day I passed the shoemaker's window and beheld my own boots. I never went that way again until I was certain that the exhibition was closed. One thing is certain, that the boots were a fine piece of workmanship. We shall hear later on of the alterations they had to undergo before we at last made them as large as we wanted, for the giant boots turned out much too small. Among other equipment, I must mention our excellent Primus cooking apparatus. This all came complete from a firm in Stockholm. For cooking on sledge journeys, the Primus stove ranks above all others. It gives a great deal of heat, uses little oil, and requires no attention. Advantages which are important enough anywhere, but especially when sledging. There is never any trouble with this apparatus. It has come as near perfection as possible. We took five Nansen cookers with us. The cooker utilizes the heat more completely than any other, but I have one objection to make to it. It takes up space. We used it on our depot journeys, but were unfortunately obliged to give it up on the main southern journey. We were so many in a tent, and space was so limited that I dared not risk using it. If one has room enough, it is ideal in my opinion. We had with us ten pairs of snowshoes and one hundred sets of dog harness of the Alaska Eskimo pattern. The Alaska Eskimo drive their dogs in tandem. The whole pull is thus straight ahead in the direction the sledge is going, and this is undoubtedly the best way of utilizing the power. I had made up my mind to adopt the same system in sledging on the barrier. Another great advantage it had was that the dogs would pass singly across fissures, so that the danger of falling through was considerably reduced. The exertion of pulling is also less trying with Alaska harness, than with the Greenland kind, as the Alaska harness has a shallow padded collar which is slipped over the animal's head and makes the weight of the pull come on his shoulders, whereas the Greenland harness presses on his chest. 
Raw places, which occur rather frequently with the Greenland harness, are almost entirely avoided with the other. All the sets of harness were made in the Navy workshops, and after their long and hard use, they are as good as ever. There could be no better recommendation than this. Of instruments and apparatus for the sledge journeys, we carried two sextants, three artificial horizons, of which two were glass horizons with dark glasses, and one a mercury horizon, and four spirit compasses, made in Christiana. They were excellent little compasses, but unfortunately useless in cold weather, that is to say, when the temperature went below minus forty degrees Fahrenheit. At this point the liquid froze. I had drawn the maker's attention to this beforehand, and asked him to use as pure a spirit as possible. What his object was I still do not know, but the spirit he employed was highly dilute. The best proof of this was that the liquid in our compasses froze before the spirits in a flask. We were naturally inconvenienced by this. Besides these we had an ordinary little pocket compass, two pairs of binoculars, one by Zeiss and the other by Gortz, and snow goggles from Dr. Schantz. We had various kinds of glasses for these, so that we could change when we were tired of one color. During the whole stay on the barrier, I myself wore a pair of ordinary spectacles with yellow glasses of quite a light tint. These are prepared by a chemical process in such a way that they nullify the harmful colors of the sun's rays. How excellent these glasses are appears clearly enough from the fact that I never had the slightest touch of snow blindness on the southern journey although the spectacles were perfectly open and allowed the light to enter freely everywhere. It will perhaps be suggested that I am less susceptible to this ailment than others, but I know from personal experience that such is not the case. I have previously had several severe attacks of snow blindness. We had two photographic cameras, an air thermometer, two aneroids with altitude scale to 15,000 feet, and two hypsometers. The hypsometer is only an instrument for determining the boiling point, which gives one the height above the sea. The method is both simple and reliable. The medical stores for sledging were given by a London firm, and the way in which the things were packed speaks for the whole outfit. There is not a speck of rust on needles, scissors, knives, or anything else, although they have been exposed to much damp. Our own medical outfit, which was bought in Christiana, and according to the vendor's statement unusually well packed, became in a short time so damaged that the whole of it is now entirely spoiled. The sledging provisions must be mentioned briefly. I have already spoken of the pemmican. I have never considered it necessary to take a whole grocer's shop with me when sledging. The food should be simple and nourishing, and that is enough. A rich and varied menu is for people who have no work to do. Besides the pemmican, we had biscuits, milk powder, and chocolate. The biscuits were a present from a well-known Norwegian factory, and did all honor to their origin. They were specially baked for us, and were made of oatmeal with the addition of dried milk and a little sugar. They were extremely nourishing and pleasant to the taste. Thanks to efficient packing, they kept fresh and crisp all the time. These biscuits formed a great part of our daily diet, and undoubtedly contributed in no small degree to the successful result. Milk powder is a comparatively new commodity with us, but it deserves to be better known. It came from the district of Yederen. Neither heat nor cold, dryness nor wet could hurt it. We had large quantities of it lying out in small, thin linen bags in every possible state of the weather. The powder was as good the last day as the first. We also took dry milk from a firm in Wisconsin. 
This milk had an addition of malt and sugar, and was, in my opinion, excellent. It also kept good the whole time. The chocolate came from a world-renowned firm and was beyond all praise. The whole supply was a very acceptable gift. We are bringing all the purveyors of our sledging provisions samples of their goods that have made the journey to the South Pole and back, in gratitude for the kind assistance they afforded us. End of Section 6 End of Chapter 2 Plan and Preparations Recording by Jer, Folly Beach, South Carolina